1975, author Roderick Thorpe saw the film The Towering Inferno, which is about a skyscraper that catches on fire. After seeing the film, Thorpe fell asleep and had a dream of seeing a man being chased through a skyscraper by men with guns. He woke up and later took that idea and turned it into the detective sequel, Nothing Lasts Forever. So says Wikipedia about Nothing Lasts Forever. So, Zach, have you ever watched a movie, had a dream, and caused you to write a terrible book? Not yet, but I'm waiting for the inspiration to strike. Welcome, by the way, to Literary Guys. This is author Zachary Kellyan. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I was really looking forward to seeing what quote you managed to pull from this book. And ah, frustratingly, you worked your way around it. Oh, there's some good stuff. I think we're going to get to some choice quotes here in Nothing Lasts Forever. Let's just start off from the top. I did not like this book. This is not a worthwhile book. I said that in the previous episode. I actually don't encourage people reading this. Have some fun listening to us talk about it. There's not a whole lot here of value, but probably enough for a few episodes for us to talk. I've always said this is the only novel that could ever follow Colson Whitehead. It is a tough follow. In fact, I have a copy of it here on the table of The Nickel Boys because I need to remember that good literature exists. That there's subtlety and subtext in human language that you can use to further a narrative. It's really easy to forget that those things exist by reading (laughs) Roderick Thorpe's book. Yeah. And so for our listeners, it's important to know that this book is a sequel. There is a book called The Detective. Which was also turned into a movie starring Frank Sinatra. And because of which Frank Sinatra was given the first right of refusal to portray the main character in the sequel movie, which became Die Hard. It's tough to imagine Frank Sinatra in that role, but if you think about it, at the time Die Hard came out, it was probably tough to imagine the star of Moonlighting as an action hero, and that was, of course, Bruce Willis, and he pulled it off magnificently. So who knows? Maybe Sinatra could have done it. So my understanding is that this character, this Joe Leland, is much more grizzled than he was in the first book. This is a look many, many years later at someone, I believe the character is is like almost 60 in the book, and is in a different headspace than they were when they originally were in The Detective, and therefore it was a very big shift. And that actually changed quite a bit. When the film script was written and rewritten, there's a wonderful documentary on Netflix if you're interested on how the script came to be. It's part of the Movies That Made Us series, so this is sort of an ancillary to what we're talking about here. It's very interesting to hear, but it was rewritten many times to screenwriters. It transformed a lot. And I hope today we can talk a little bit about some of the differences that exist between the book here, Nothing Lasts Forever, and Die Hard. And if you're listening right now and you are occasionally annoyed by your literary snob friends, Dr. Gordon McCallan and myself included in that group, this is great ammunition for people who say the book is always better. This is true, that the first major difference is that the movie is amazing and that the book sucks. (laughs) So let's talk about some of the differences that exist here. There's also some really odd similarities that are things you wouldn't expect to be Mm -hmm. similar between the book and the movie once you get into it and you're like, holy cow, this is super different. It's Joe Leland versus John McClane. Character's name is changed. Mm -hmm. Like you said, in the novel, he's a much older gentleman, although described as in very good shape because he quote-unquote does three minutes of sit-ups every day, which shows you a little bit about what the exercise regimen in 1979 looked like. That's very true. We have... 
Anton Gruber, who, you know, that kind of changed a bit. Became Hans Gruber. Indeed. And in the book, he's referred to almost always as Little Tony. Or Little Tony the Red. This is true. We have the female lead, if you want to call her that, because in the book that there are no well-developed female characters. <laughs> it applies a lot by giving anyone a leading role in this, yes. But Stephanie Leland Gerraro is his daughter, not his estranged wife. But the last name remains the same. Which is odd. It seems like the one thing that you wouldn't keep. We have Klaxon Oil as opposed to the Nakatomi. Nakatomi. Nakatomi Plaza. We have some different characters who he's talking to on the radio. We have Taco Bill, which is a weird character we'll meet later on. And the opening sequence, actually, and this is maybe a good place to jump into the book, is him on an airplane, which is also the way the movie begins. Except in this case, it's a horrible scene. You want to tell us about what happens on the airplane? Yeah, vaguely, um, Jim Leland, a recovering alcoholic, uses his sobriety to strike up a conversation with the equally sober stewardess. Mm -hmm. um, And he uh, makes sure that he calls her a stewardess, by the way, in the novel, because he doesn't want anyone thinking when he relates the story that he was hitting on a flight attendant or a male. He's very specific about using the term stewardess consciously. I actually have that quote on my sheet here, so let me read it right now. I usually call them flight attendants. In this context, I wanted to be clear that I was talking about a woman. The male laughter made her blush. We all hear this, Ellis said. We're all getting reprogrammed. Yeah, it, that was an interesting nod to, like, hyper-PC culture, at least the 1970s version of that. Mm-hmm. I, I did actually enjoy that. I did find that was one of the few moments of, of joy that I derived from this book was, was that little insight into the era. And that conversation actually occurred with my favorite character from the movie, who actually is in the book, which is Harry Ellis. Yes. The cocaine-addled, just loser executive who... John, baby! Booby. Booby! Booby! Booby, I'm your white knight. (laughs) Uh, Far less entertaining character in this. Nah. But yeah, anyways, Jim Leland, uh, Leland, excuse me, is... This uh, retired detective, which interestingly enough, Roderick Thorpe, the author of this, himself a retired detective. Mm -hmm. But Joe is uh, hitting on this flight attendant and um, feels like maybe he got some vibes from her. So, you know, he just leans in for a kiss Mm -hmm. like you do. Mm -hmm. And um, then uh, she becomes inexplicably a part of this narrative for the entirety of the book, even though they shared maybe 10 minutes of conversation. Yeah. And And a a brief sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, and this is not a spoiler. I mean, I I don't think there's really any spoilers here. While he is under siege in the building, he insists on calling her repeatedly. (laughs) And she is just swooning over this guy who... She is such a poorly developed character and such a stereotype. Like, maybe... It's worthwhile us kind of touching on for a moment here. Like, the whole portrayal of women in this book is just very ditzy, you know, non-intellectual beings that seem to exist for the pleasure of the men around them. Like Women and minorities are very one-note in this. Uh, Mm -hmm. That seems to, in fact, be their defining characteristic. 
their gender, or their race. And then as far as Roderick Thorpe is concerned, that's all you need to know about him. You get it. This is a woman I'm writing about. This is a black person I'm writing about. You know, it, it's very tough to read in 2021. Yeah. And even, you know, we've certainly read some things with questionable racial material, but there was far more nuance and sensitivity in a 1920s Hemingway short story than we see here in something, you know, from relatively our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very troubling. It, it is. I'm going to say, to be fair, I don't want to be fair to this novel at all. This novel, you have no need to be fair to this novel. <laughs> this novel has uh, the ignominious distinction of lessening my enjoyment of the Die Hard movie, believe it or not. But I would say it's a pulp novel. So are we to expect many nuanced characters in a pulp novel? Probably not. But it is worth noting that, yes, all of the female characters and all of the characters of color are very one-note stereotypes. And that gets very fatiguing to read after even just a few pages. I wouldn't be surprised if someone were to pick up this book and not make it through the second chapter. Yeah, I almost didn't. It's so front-loaded with this, like, this bitter view of humanity. I know we've talked about maybe having some Bukowski here on the mm-hmm. podcast. And I actually think that there's some similarity, not in writing style, because Bukowski at least has a writing style. <laughs> I don't like it, but there is yeah. a writing style there. But that same jaded view, I, I, I feel some of that there. And so we look at this and we're like, is this maybe some sort of modern interpretation of what a pulp novel is in 1975 as opposed to like the 1940s and 1950s pulp detective novels. It makes you wonder what was going on in that era because if you look at a movie like Dirty Harry, which kind of came out around the same time, deals with many of the same themes, the women are kind of in that movie or those series of movies to be assaulted, to be victims, uh, to be casually targeted by the villain or even sometimes by the hero. And it's like, what happened? You know, in in the 1930s and 40s, you had Nora Charles holding her own alongside her detective husband, sometimes breaking open the case with her insight and intuitiveness. Mm -hmm. And then 30 years later, females have taken on a far more shallower dimension in literature and film. I, I don't know what's happening there. And I'll also say, since you called out Nora Charles, she did it with panache. Yeah. She was solving those mysteries and mixing a cocktail at the same time. Like, this was a woman amongst women and someone to be envied in many ways in her acumen. So I'm totally with you. Like, there is something very off-putting about the portrayal of women, the portrayal of characters of color, because it seems to be the, the note that I always end up hitting on the portrayal of gay characters as well. And there aren't any gay characters, I believe, in the actual plot of this book. But Roderick Thorpe doesn't care. Within 13 pages of the novel, he tells this awful story about a police case he had worked on with a gay suspect that is this terrible view of gay people in general And it doesn't even serve a point in the story. It's like, I just feel a need to tell this story about this guy who was so unable to deal with the fact that he was gay that he went and murdered his lover. And then I think there's multiple ways to read this, that he cut off his own penis in order Mm -hmm. to distract the police. 
It is not the only anecdote, by the way, that Joe Leland gives about penis chopping off. He also randomly, when he's not calling his quote-unquote girlfriend slash the woman he casually sexually assaulted on an airplane in the middle of a firefight, he's often reminiscing about the Cessna he bought one time or about other terrorist cells around the world who occasionally chop off quote-unquote penises in Zaire. This is true. He does bring this up. He seems a little bit obsessed with it. Makes you wonder. The other thing that makes me wonder in this book is this absolutely idiotic coincidence that seems to be very much at the heart of Joe Leland's interaction with the terrorists. And in this case, to be clear in this book, they actually are terrorists. This is not the same as the movie where it was more of like a cover for the fact they were trying to steal uh, the bearer bonds from the vault. The coincidence is that, lo and behold, Joe <laughs> Leland was at a counterterrorism right. conference where they were talking about little Tony the Red, and he had all this background information about yes. this guy who had taken over the building. And I don't know, it just felt so strained. Like, the movie just cut all of that out and is like John McClane had no idea who this guy was. Which makes for a more compelling narrative. You would think it would be the other way around. You would think the book would have more nuance and the movie would kind of cut to the chase for the sake of plot pacing or something like that and have John McClane somehow know this. But it's actually really compelling that McClane, for half the movie, doesn't really know his adversaries. And in fact, a scene that does occur in the novel and in the movie where he kind of rides the elevator down from the top of the elevator yep. to listen in, in the movie, though, that's where he gathers most of his information about the terrorists. It actually makes more sense than it did in the novel that he did something like that. Mm -hmm. And John McClane, and again, we're using John McClane to talk about the movie and Joe Leland to talk about the book, that John McClane is the everyman here. The everyman wouldn't know who this random German terrorist is. But in this case, this grizzled detective who happened to have some counterterrorism knowledge has all this background info on this guy, yet he doesn't seem to help him make any better decisions. He still ends up hanging off of the building by a fire hose. Right. Yet taking away for a moment the gratuitous and casual violence, especially against women in this novel... Pretend that doesn't happen for a second. Joe Leland is still a difficult character to root for because through his own admission, he's lucking his way into most of these things and doing a lot of mistakes on top of that to make his situation precariously worse. It does make you wonder, are we supposed to be rooting for this guy? I he don't is, know. It is interesting that there is a reading of this book where we're just not supposed to like him and that he really isn't that relatable of a character. Well, and skipping ahead, because again, we don't really care about spoiling anything about this novel. This is not the Nickel Boys. Right. The Carl character rising from the dead to attack John McClane in the movie in midst of all the reporters after you think he's safe occurs in the novel as well. Mm -hmm. There is an interesting moment where Joe Leland can't really tell the difference between himself and Carl. This villain and this hero. They're both kind of these grizzled, bloodied beaten down people who are just hell-bent on revenge and have kind of chucked away their humanity. And mm -hmm. I guess if you wanted to give this a more critical reading, perhaps that's something this novel's trying to say about the nature of humanity. But again, I think that's being far too generous. I, I think that is giving it far too much credit to consider that that's really what this is about. I think this feels to me like an angry book written by an angry person. This is a conversation that you and I have had before, back when we were talking about Fight Club. Mm -hmm. 
that I said, Zach, I don't care for this book. I feel like it's mindlessly angry, especially the second half of that book. But, oh my God, when I compare it against this, I'm like, Chuck Palahniuk? You are a nuanced writer. Like, <laughs> no, like no I, I, I can get behind that. I can't get behind this. And it, it even feels like, at least I'd love to believe, that this was outdated at the time it was written. Interesting. Interesting. I, you've got to wonder, because there's so many odd creative choices that this novel makes, if Joe Leland is indeed the hero of this novel, mm-hmm. he is unremittingly violent towards the female terrorists and initially shows some humanity in that he feels guilty about it. But by the end, he's just killing them in cold blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, he machine guns the corpse of a civilian. What was that about? I don't know. This I, happens I, I, in the I novel. I honestly do not know. This happens in the novel. If you're just having been familiar with the movie, if you remember the CEO from the movie, I believe is the first of the hostages to be killed. Mm-hmm. Imagine if just halfway through the movie, John McClane stumbles upon his rigor mortis corpse and for absolutely no explainable reason, empties a full clip of his very precious ammo into the dead body. Because that happens in the novel and then it just goes on without explaining anything after that. Again, I am not going to try and justify what's going on here, (laughs) which leads me to the question, sort of the big question, is should anyone really bother reading this book? Like, is this a historical book, like many books are, that we learn something about the time in which it was written? Yeah. That perhaps we learn about a subset of society who maybe in that time felt this way, felt like they were being left behind. I totally could imagine someone who was a detective who was in their 60s, think the world had changed, that, you know, this isn't a world where they're going to be effective. And they just have a lot of angst and anger towards the world. And like, is there anything in this book which we actually can take away and say that this is worthwhile that we now know this? Here's what I would say. I would say this novel is bereft of any literary merit. You can say that about some good books. There are plenty of plot-driven books by very well-known authors that don't have literary merit, but are still enjoyable reads, are engaging, Mm -hmm. fast-paced action thrillers. But with Nothing Lasts Forever, it goes out of its way to be ugly time and time again. And I would say the only value in reading this book is maybe if you are a person who is interested in screenwriting. Mm -hmm. Because I think there is something to be said for the parts that the movie Die Hard did choose to take from this book, which was a bestseller in its day. So they had reason to think that it had some merit. Because it made an excellent movie. Mm-hmm. And some of the big beats, you know, like you said, the fire hose off the building, the gun strapped to his back, the chair bomb down the elevator shaft. A lot of the cool moments from the movie are in this book, but they do such a better job of rounding out John McClane as a character and even giving his LAPD partner on the street more of a backstory, mm-hmm. more of a warmth of character than just the random black guy who Roderick Thorpe describes as not having much ghetto in his voice. You know, there's so much more nuance in a major blockbuster Hollywood movie than there is in a book that we could probably talk about this for hours because it's mind-boggling to me. I can't really wrap my head around how that topsy-turviness took place. But there it is. And yeah, I don't think that there's any reason to actually read this book other than if you're a huge fan of the Die Hard movie and the curiosity just gets the better of you. Mm-hmm. The only reason why I would say reading this book beyond what you 
just said is it is an interesting take on a pulp novel from the mid-70s where we don't read a whole lot of pulp novels from that period. And so is it a successful attempt at writing that? I actually don't think so. But if you look at it in that context, I think maybe there's something there. But even the great pulp novels, there was some nuance hiding in there. Mm -hmm. There was something that was compelling that struck on a nerve of masculinity or struck on a nerve of intrigue. I love old like noir novels and, and paperbacks from that period. Like there's something there, even though it, it may have been pulp. This it just feels like it fails to to hit on those notes. And if you're still on the fence, you still feel like really maybe you wanna read this novel. I would suggest Googling, as Dr. McCallan and I just did, a photo of its author, Roderick Thorpe. Look at that photo, look that man deep in the eyes, and if you think you'd want to spend an afternoon in that man's company, then you should probably read this book. But trust me, you won't. You know, before we wrap things up here, we have a very special cocktail that we're drinking today. We do. It's actually not a Stardust Lounge original. This is true. It is by special arrangement. It's uh, brought to us by our friends, another Seattle bar, the great Rob Roy. If you're ever in Seattle, we recommend going there. They mix up a delicious cocktail. They know their cocktail history, and they have a tradition of a Christmas pop-up that, Dr. McCallum, you introduced me to. Yes, uh, we've been doing it for multiple years now. It's a Christmas advent, and one of their cocktails is simply entitled the Yippie-Kaye Motherfucker. And we are drinking that now. I think the the recipe is proprietary. It's a boozy, not too sweet kind of eggnoggy drink. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair way to describe it? I think that's uh, roughly in the wheelhouse. But don't take our word for it. Go swing by Rob Roy and try out the other cocktails as well. There's a uh, Chrismapolitan, I believe it's called, yes, which is yes. my personal favorite from that cocktail advent calendar. And, you know, we spent the uh, the first episode of this podcast trashing Nothing Lasts Forever. But there are probably some interesting things, maybe not flattering things, that this has to say about masculinity. So I think we've got enough content to maybe do one or two more episodes on this. Yeah, I don't think this is going to be a full month here, but I heard you had an interesting idea for a fourth episode this month. So we may have to take a field trip. Yeah, stay tuned. We'll be taking literary guys on the road. But before we do that, before we wrap up today, uh, we've got a sponsor. Who is our sponsor today, Zach? I don't know if you uh, checked the sponsor sheet, but I actually coughed up some money myself to sponsor this very special episode. Oh, really? Yeah, so unfortunately, some of the elements that you referenced earlier about character choice in this novel has not left us in 2021. I am a editor of a literary magazine, so I read the slush pile on a daily basis of people submitting their stories, and I find that a lot of writers fall into the same traps that Roderick Thorpe does, though perhaps for different reasons. Mm-hmm. They know that they it's 2021, they need to write a novel with some diversity in it, and they that's as far as they go. And if someone is a character of color, it is enough for you to know that they are a character of color, and that is the only substance that that character is given. So being that we see this problem in 1979, and we still see this problem in 2021, I thought I'd be a little selfish and get some ad time here. Dear white authors, do you need to feature a person of color in your narrative? That's great. The world is a diverse place, and your fictional world should reflect that. But before you do, I don't know, make sure you've met a person of color first. And maybe, just maybe, your narrator doesn't need to immediately tell us a person's race as their only defining characteristic. Still confused? Picture this. You're at a bar, and your friend leans in close, like you two share a secret. 
and they start a sentence with, so there's this black guy. Do you think there is any chance of that sentence ending well? Of course not, because no sentence begun that way has ever had a good outcome in human history. So if that would make you uncomfortable in a bar, why would you want to make your readers just as uncomfortable? There are unlimited ways to describe a person without immediately going to race, skin color, gender, or sexuality. This message brought to you by 2021 and forever. How does time sponsor an episode? <laughs> that, is, that is a very abstract concept that I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of the evening. But I think it's time to wrap things up here. So thanks to the Stardust Lounge, as always. Thanks to Edgar Bergamont. And uh, no thanks to the book for this month, because that was a slog to get through. And I'm a little upset that you recommended it. But I'm sure we're still going to have fun talking about it. I did not recommend it. I suggested <laughs> it. This is a big difference between those two. Okay, well, until next time, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.